Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guests will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be Jason Shanks, president of our Sunday Visitor Institute, and Dr. Eustace Fernandez, pulmonary and critical care physician. This is a storytelling episode that we hope is the first of an irregularly recurring series of stories where we doctors learn from our patients, and you can help learn and listen along with us. You know, we've done so many shows over the last year regarding the coronavirus, but one of the things that we thought was missing, and uh, Jason was kind enough to give us a great opportunity to hear from a COVID survivor, and just his story. It's really incredible the things that many people, I think Jason in a lot of ways represents a lot of people who have suffered from the pandemic, but there's so much hope in talking to him. And so I'm excited to hear him share that with everyone today. It's a compelling story, which has been written up uh, online, and we'll tell you later where you can read more about it if you want to. But this is also a joyful event because this is like the first time in a year that deep underground in a bunker near Fort Wayne. We have had guests in our home not related to us. This is so wonderful. Thanks be to God for the vaccine. It's helping many of us get along with our lives right now. We don't want to take up too much time in this introduction because the story is so compelling. And what you're going to notice here, and Jason has given us permission to talk about all the medical related stuff to us. So he's going to give us a HIPAA disclaimer later on. He actually thought about this to make sure that we couldn't get into any trouble talking about him. Yeah, that's. I think it's a safe thing to say since he'll be on here as well. But yeah, this is all HIPAA legal. Uh, because he will say so. So uh, before we go to the break, I'll pose our medical trivia question of the day. The category is little known problems with intensive care unit stays. So Jason's story is going to include a description of what is called ICU delirium. And delirium describes a condition where patients experience a severe state of confusion. They can't think clearly, pay attention, uh, or easily understand what's going on around them. Sounds like some of my kids. But no, this is much more severe. They may even see or hear things that aren't there, yet they seem quite real to them. And Jason's going to describe this. These experiences are upsetting and lead to feelings of fear, anger, loneliness, and shame. The question, approximately what percentage of patients who go on a ventilator experience ICU delirium? You're going to have to wait till the end of the show for the answer, but we'll be back with more in an incredible story here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back, and we have with us live our two guests tonight. First, I'd like to introduce Jason Shanks, our COVID survivor. He's president of the Our Sunday Visitor Institute, now shortened to the OSV Institute. He's former CEO of Catholic Charities of Southeast Michigan. He also was the Secretary Leader of Evangelization and Parish Life for the Diocese of Toledo, Ohio, not Spain. He worked in youth ministry and business and pastoral administration. He has a bachelor's in education from Miami University, the one in Ohio, not Florida. He has an MA in theology from Pontifical University, Josephine in Columbus, and an MA in nonprofit administration from Mendoza College of Business at a little Catholic school in Northern Indiana called Notre Dame. He's a husband of Melissa and father of five. And we also have returning to the show our good friend, Dr. Eustace Fernandez, father of five and husband of Anne, who did a lot of school at The Ohio State University for graduate and residency, and then a fellowship in pulmonology in Pittsburgh, and he practices pulmonology and ICU medicine here in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So, Jason, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Eustace, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. First, a word about HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996, near and dear to the hearts of physicians everywhere. It includes provisions for patient privacy. Before any of us physicians share any of Jason's medical information, we should confirm that Jason does not mind this open discussion. Oh, no, absolutely. Let's share away. <laughs> Thank you. And to set the cast and the crew here, we have Jason, who is 42 years old? 40, 45 on Friday. 45 on Good Friday. Mm -hmm. His health status as of November, before you got sick, was? Pretty normal, I think, for you know, 44-year-old. Uh, I have had asthma and dealt with asthma all my life, severe allergies. But other than that, um, pretty active with five little kids. So, and, and Eustace, would you say he had any risk factors at the time? No, no. I think uh, asthma is possible, but a minor risk factor. We've talked about other things yes. that are much higher uh, in terms of risk factors for development of severe COVID. 
And then Melissa, we'll refer to, that's your wife, of how many years? 17 years. He didn't even hesitate, nor did he have notes. <laughs> Andrew, what's your role in all this? I uh, got to work with Jason early on, especially with the role of being PCP, and then a little bit more after coming out of the hospital. So PCP, for those not in the know? Oh, primary care physician. <laughs> right. And Eustace? I'm an ICU doctor and a uh, pulmonary specialist, so... COVID, as we know, ravages the lungs and, and the rest of the body sort of follows. So uh, we were um, intimately involved in the intensive care unit. With Jason's care. These and, are my doctors. Right. And, and then, um, you know, uh, I, Tom, uh, with Jason and Eustace, we're members of Little St. Patrick's Church in Arcola, Indiana, on the outskirts of Fort Wayne. And I happen to be the father of a college freshman, Mary, at Hillsdale, who plays a role in Jason's story, too. So let's go back to Tuesday night, November 10th, 2020. Andrew and I were recording an episode of Dr. Doctor, and I got the following text message from Jason. Do you know that they are able, what they are able to do in a hospital for COVID patients? This attack uh, on me as an asthmatic is not getting better. The breathing treatments Dr. Malali gave seem to be stalling out. And uh, he couldn't get a hold of him. Why? Because he was recording with me. So I was able to talk to Andrew in between recordings. And, and But Jason says here, I don't want to be put on a ventilator. That's important notes. He fears going to the hospital. I know you've interviewed and talked to Dr. Fernandez. I guess I think you and he might know whether it's best to continue fighting this at home or it's time to go in. I responded, you couldn't have texted at a better time. Andrew and I are taping two episodes now. Andrew recommended going to the hospital for a pulse ox reading and a trial of oxygen. Andrew, have you learned anything since November that would change what you recommended at that time? Man, yeah. I feel like every single day we're learning more about COVID, and especially in November. That was kind of the pre-winter surge. There's a lot of options that we have now. Um, the biggest one I'm thinking of are some of the infusion therapies that we didn't have available to outpatients at that time. So, yeah, I'd, I'd say this was still early on in the kind of the destruction of COVID. Right. And so Jason said his pulse ox at the moment was 95. It had been down to 80 earlier that day. He asked which hospital to go to. We said the one where Eustace works. Jason, what did you feel like that night? Yeah, again, I just felt like, you know, having dealt with asthma uh, my whole life, I sort of knew what asthma attacks looked like. I knew what it, how, what it was like to not feel like you can take deep breaths and catch your breath. And even though my pulse, pulse ox seemed normal, <laughs> uh, I didn't feel normal. And so I was trying to figure out, do I go to the hospital? Do I keep with these treatments? What do I need to do? And you can see I was starting to text the people I trust the most, which is frankly, you guys around the table. And, and Eustace, how common would you say Jason's experience at that point was? I think it's pretty common. Honestly, there's a sense in which this illness feels different in some way than anything you've experienced before. And I've had numerous patients tell me that. There also is a lot of frustration because the number looks right. So it's 95%, uh, but you still feel awful. Uh -huh. And sometimes Oh, the way I explain it to patients is that that number is great, but it doesn't tell you how hard your body is working to maintain that number. And so it's a it's a common uh, sign that the body is under stress. And, and this perception that patients have of being hungry for air or not being able to get enough of a deep breath, I mean, that's very real. And it's a it's a ominous sign. So at the end of our recording session that night, November 10th, you texted back, couldn't get seen at the hospital. Hospital said they and all hospitals in their areas have no beds and no room in the ER. They're having COVID patients wait over four hours in the lobby. They recommended using the nebulizer, that's for your breathing treatments at home, and get more relief than you probably would sitting in the ER. And you said, quote, our region is in trouble. We need to move back to shutting gatherings down as we have overtaxed the system. We are the New York of March. What do you think of that, Eustace? It was something that I could feel and sense in my heart of hearts because around November 15th, I think our institution hit its peak. And you something you just really don't want to be true, but then you see patient after patient with severe critical illness, and you know that it's true, and you know that something has gone terribly off kilter, and we have to do something dramatic to reel things back in. So it was a... It was a sinking feeling. And Jason, from that day, how did your course change of your health from that Tuesday to Saturday, November 14th, only four days later? 
Yeah, it seemed to just keep getting worse and worse. Uh, I was now I was even more concerned because I thought I can't even get in the hospital. Uh, so at frankly, I was starting to think about do I need to look out of the, out of the state? Where do I need to go? And it kept deteriorating. Again, I was in the hospital. I would wait in the lobby for hours. Finally, I said, I can at least do better at home with breathing treatments than I'm doing here. A nurse came out and spoke to me and said, we got nothing for you. But that four days was a continual decline to the point that, um, again, I think because I've dealt with my asthma all my life, I knew I was pretty much, um, there was no more I could do. So I put my shoes on. My wife said, where are you going? I said, I'm not going anywhere. I need you to call the ambulance. And the ambulance came and uh, the, the next adventure began. And they took you to the hospital where Eustace was. And somehow you were yes, there. Yes, I requested. That... I wanted to be where Eustace was, although I didn't <laughs> know if he was going to be there or not. Um, but I was heading that direction. Were you supposed to be there? I was not supposed to be there. But and God intervened. God intervened. So I was sitting there. Uh, with my wife and Melissa, Jason's wife, had been texting back and forth with my wife and kind of giving us a uh, blow by blow of what was happening. And it, it sounded really bad. And on one hand, I wanted to be there to help Jason, but in my heart of hearts, I did not want to be there because there's something uniquely terrifying about caring for someone that you know, and you sit across yes. from uh, yes. at mass every Sunday, and, and it was terrifying. And then I got a call from one of my partners saying that the person who was supposed to show up to work that evening was not able to make it into town because they had been sequestered at their hospital due to their own COVID emergency. So I was the guy uh, who got called in to help um, when uh, I guess God sort of dragged me into it. So what happened when you got to the hospital and saw each other? So to be honest, I've never, I don't remember seeing him. And so maybe if I did, I apologize. But uh, um, so what happened to me is I got to the hospital and to be honest, I thought I was going to go into emergency room, get some steroids like an asthmatic would, have a little breathing treatment and send me home. Uh, and then I would call Dr. Malali. Um, however, when I got there, they did some, apparently some blood work and x-rays and this, that, and the other. And, um, I was told they need to, uh, sedate and intubate, intubate me. And, uh, that's when I knew, uh, this is pretty severe. And you, you heard my text earlier, did not want to go down this course. Right. But, um, I really thought for myself, I thought this is likely the end. Uh, and so, uh, I started texting and calling, um, of course, my wife, I was telling her about where the life insurance policies were. Uh, and I remember, it's funny, in a sad way, where you would think you would say, you're the love of my life, I love you, you know, goodbye, or da-da-da. I was like, here's life insurance, here's how the bills are being paid, here's where the accounts are. Because you know, now I'm in, like, panic mode. Yes. Uh, and then she says to me, she says, this can't be your goodbye to your children, so please text me a final message to each one. So I then started texting wow. her, met each kid, a message, which we still have, which I have not read since. Um, mm. Then I text my boss and I text teammates, friends. I called my family and told my sister, please stay home, take care of the kids. So at this point, I thought, I don't know how this is going to turn out. Um, and then um, I, I don't want to jump too far away in your story, but I would say that your one, story, <laughs> one of the things I um, in my story is that I insisted you cannot do anything until a priest arrives because mm. I wanted to be anointed. And uh, I have a good priest friend who I've known for 20 plus years uh, who drove uh, from Huntington, Indiana to uh, to anoint me. Thanks be to God. Jay, or so Eustace, pick up when you saw Jason. Well, I arrived at work and I was going to go track him down and I was hoping things weren't as bad as they sounded. But I talked to my partner who was there and he said, you need to go see this guy in room 552 uh, oh. because he is really, really sick. He's a sick young man. So I knew who that was. So I went up there and and I entered the room fully garbed. And, and I think it was the first time when I entered the room of a COVID-19 patient that I actually physically touched them with an ungloved hand because to me, it seemed important to know that human touch still existed. I mean, we're so garbed yes. up and, and insulated. So I remember distinctly touching Jason's hand and his forehead. 
and saying, now I'm going to do some things that I'm sure you're not going to like. And he was at that point, I would say, you know, comatose because of the medicines we had given him. But at that point, I needed to place some very large IVs and a special IV into an artery so that we could continuously measure his blood pressure. And so at that point, as a as a physician, I have to kind of depersonalize it, uh, not dehumanize, but depersonalize and, and get down to business and take care of him and, and do procedures on someone that I know, which is always a, a uh, pulse-pounding, stressful experience. And um, many years ago, I adopted the uh, practice of praying, even if it's a simple prayer, even the words Hail Mary or Dear Jesus, um, to kind of guide my hands, make sure everything happens as safely as possible and as smoothly as possible for the patient. But it was uh, particularly important um, because I wasn't even supposed to be there. <laughs> and here I am doing a procedure on on a fellow parishioner, someone who's, whose life in some ways is very similar to mine. Um, with five children and geographically we kind of followed each other around from uh, uh, Toledo to Columbus to Pittsburgh to Fort Wayne and we were always one step uh, behind or ahead of each other so our lives had a a great deal of overlap before all of this. So that was Saturday evening November 14th. I turned my phone off when I go to bed and when I woke up the following Sunday morning there was a text from of course we're going to bring in our other co-host Chris Stroud (laughs) and Chris had notified me that Jason had been intubated. Now, uh, Chris, Jason, and I are actually in a forum of, of uh, businessmen together. So I called my daughter, Mary, who had been a nanny who had spent up to 40 hours a week at the Shanks home helping out with their kids since so March or April until she went to college in August. And uh, Mary didn't know anything more than I did. Uh, but she said she was being um, isolated because of uh, possible COVID. And I said, oh, okay. Hung up with her. 30 minutes later, she calls and says, Dad, my test came back. I'm positive, but I'm over the worst symptoms. Then I find out 30 minutes after that, this is before even going to Mass that Sunday morning, that Melissa Shanks had put out a plea to find somebody that had had COVID who could come live with the family and help take care of the kids. And when we told Mary that, she said, Dad, I would be sinning if I don't go live with them and help them. She packed up, and that Sunday, she started to drive home. Our darn van wouldn't work. So Sally and I drove up two vehicles to get her so she could drive in one alone and not possibly infect one of us. And she then spent the next, I don't know, 12 days living with the Shanks, uh, helping them out. So thanks be to God uh, that worked out too. It's funny because I don't, I'm hearing some of these things for the first time, believe it or not, on with you. I did not realize you and Sally did that. And that's that's as moving as touching to me as it is that uh that Mary did that and thank God she did. You know, my whole family had COVID. All right. my children had COVID. And they had symptoms. All all the way down to three year old, as Doctor Malali knows, and uh Melissa in particular had it a little rougher and now had to take care of kids who had COVID right. and a husband in the hospital. And so if Mary had not shown up, um, I, I don't know what other shape we would be in. But One other thing about Mary, um, who I've known since she was small, is that she served as an important intermediary between me and Melissa, mm. because there were times when Melissa wasn't feeling well. Right. There were times when she was spending time with the children, which they needed, and I needed to convey information. And because of the COVID visitation restrictions right. and all of those things, uh, connecting with family and disseminating information and communicating was really hard. So one of the things that Mary facilitated was ease of communication. Um, and that was that was a lot of weight to bear on her shoulders. So thank God she was there. A freshman in college decides to come stay for 12 At days. At Hillsdale, and she continued her classes uh, virtually. And I want to point out something, that oftentimes we see a friend who is suffering and wonder, what the heck can we do for them? Do you know how how it felt freeing to be able to drive up and get her. It's like, Mm. I am doing something concrete for Jason. Mm. If she just drove home, it's like, yeah, I wasn't really involved. So it's actually a gift when somebody's Mm. suffering to be able to do something. It is incredible just to hear this story. And, you know, it kind of came together for me after you got out of the hospital, Jason, but how kind of your story and your life touched and was touched by so many different people mm. and you look at this and you just see god's hand and his plan and all of this mm. you know and thank goodness you did so well i 
I wanted to ask too, kind of more about Melissa. I can only imagine she being sick herself. What was she going through this time at this time, Jason? Uh, well, one, she's sick uh, herself. She's, I think, incredibly worried. And then there's a whole lot of other things that obviously I'm in the hospital that she didn't have oversight of that I did that now she's got to figure out for the first time related to our bills and finances and this, that, and the other. I think to Dr. Fernandez's point, she really wants to see me and be with me and can't. I think there's a level of frustration uh, there. Um, and then we have a special needs daughter. So our special needs daughter has cerebral palsy, autistic. She's she's 12, but developmentally about a one and a half year old. This is why it was so important, frankly, for Mary to come, because Mary and my special needs daughter have an incredible bond. And I think uh, I was that other person in my special needs daughter, nonverbal daughter's life. So for Melissa, yes. this became a huge challenge because uh, how to help get her to sleep at night, to how to get her in the house, because that was pretty much my role and job. Um, so it, it, this is a lot on, on a particular person with five kids, one of them being special needs, everybody having COVID themselves. And I must tell you, um, I'm just so, I guess, maybe impressed is the wrong word. Um, I'm grateful to have Melissa in my life. I don't think, uh, here's a little funny joke, when, I, when, I, when everything got to the end and I finally woke up, she says to me something like, you can never be frustrated with me again. Because <laughs> in her mind, she's like, I saved your life five times. Maybe this decision. <laughs> and I think that's true. I mean, I, not only that, but maybe we'll talk about some of the prayers and stuff. But she really, um, she prayed me into life, I think, uh, in, in many ways. And she is the, uh, she's the saint that I would hope to be, you know, and strive to be. So December 1st. So this is just over two weeks later, you tried to wean Jason. Mm -hmm. Tell us about what went into the decision-making process and what happened when you did that. Yeah, so I, th I think it was one of my partners. So weaning from mechanical ventilation, from the ventilator when you're uh, struggling with COVID is, is always a dicey uh, deal. It's a little more challenging than other diseases we've taken care of. It's There's a very high failure rate, but um, I believe it was one of my partners who uh, looked at Jason X-ray was getting better. He was getting better by the numbers anyway. And he is a 44-year-old man who's mentally seemingly clear and able to do these things. And so my partner was absolutely correct in giving him a trial, um, which is allowing him to breathe with the breathing tube in his mouth, but doing the vast majority of the work on his own. And at that point, he was successful in coming off the respirator. And, and so that was a moment of, of real excitement. Um, Do you remember this, Jason? No, I don't have any memory of so it. So this whole time when they tried to wean you, you don't have any memory? No, the only thing I know is stories that's been told to me, but I don't remember. Right. So I had been not in the COVID ICU, but I was following closely, you know, and, and I was looking at the x-rays every day, looking at the numbers in between my office patients. I'm, I'm you know, watching um, to see which way this is going to turn. And day one, one and a half, things were looking okay, but still extraordinarily tenuous. And then uh, I can't remember if it was day two or three off the ventilator when my partners again rightly made the decision uh, that it was time to go back on the ventilator. What, what were you guys seeing at that time, or I guess your partners, that said, okay, we need to go back on the vent? So there are a couple things. So the chest x-ray was looking progressively worse rather than better. Uh, the work of breathing, um, so the amount of exertion Jason was having to do despite having uh, what we call a BiPAP mask on a, or a non-invasive ventilator was still extraordinarily high. And then the third thing was the high level of confusion uh, that he was developing. So this can be a sign that the body's not getting enough oxygen or that carbon dioxide levels are rising or that the body is just fatigued. All of us have had um, things where we, we have been up all night or sleep deprived and the brain just stops working properly. It's incredibly disorienting. On that note, before we head into the abyss, before rising from it, we're gonna take a break here on Dr. Doctor. Be back with more of Jason's story after the break. And we're back with Dr. Doctor today for a very special episode, Telling Jason's Story. 
And Eustace, maybe you can carry us through, because after he got back on the ventilator, things were not moving in the right direction initially. Is that right? So anytime a patient in the intensive care unit ends up having to go back on the ventilator, the risk of death rises precipitously. In Jason's case, several things were happening at once. He had a bloodstream infection with a highly infectious bug called MRSA. He had pneumonia related to this this MRSA. He had what we call septic shock, which is where the blood pressure uh, drops precipitously related to this new and deadly infection. And then he experienced a shutdown of his kidneys or, or renal failure, as we call it, and began to require not just regular dialysis, which some of us may be familiar with, but uh, a particular type of dialysis called continuous renal replacement therapy. And this was, um, this is, these are all very, very aggressive maneuvers. Around the same time, the lungs, which had seen some progress, began to fail again, now related to pneumonia. And we began to do something called proning, which we've talked about on the show, mm-hmm. where we would put um, him for 18 hours on his stomach and six hours on his back. And, and just go back and forth with that undulating pattern until we saw signs of improvement. So these things sound to me like, you might say, last-ditch efforts. Would, would that be safe to say that this is extreme treatment? This is extreme treatment, and it's important to remember that in the intensive care unit, the more organ systems one has in failure, the more likely it is that they will lose their life to whatever that illness is. So this was in extremis, yes. So then you did something on the personal side with Jason. Yeah, again, Mary facilitated uh, Melissa and I talking and and Melissa knew how dire Jason's situation was. And she, again, could not come because of the COVID visitation policies. Understandably frustrated, she said, look, I know you're not working in that ICU, but I think Jason just needs a friend. And so I was able to go up to the ICU and put on all my garb again and go into uh, Jason's room and again, be able to actually, you know, touch his forehead, touch his hand, um, let him know that I was there, pray with him and for him. And, um, and I happened to have Lord's water on me, which had been sent to me. Standard ICU issue. Standard yeah. ICU issue. It had actually been. It actually had a, a camouf- camouflage bottle. It had actually been sent to me by somebody who I have never met before, who lives somewhere on the East Coast, who saw one of the segments I did on EWTN television, and tracked me down and sent this box of Lord's water to me. So it happened to be in my pocket. I was able to to put some Lord's water on Jason, and it was. Um, It was, in a sense, just a realization of my role as a physician, a human, um, and a Catholic, and all of those things. So uh, a lot of the nurses were peeking in, and some of them Catholic, some of them non-Catholic, but they knew exactly what was happening in the room. They knew I wasn't there as a doctor that day. Jason, this was about December 10th, maybe. December 15th, your wife got out the heavy artillery. What did she do? So she started the St. Jude Novena. And um, uh, we, frankly, did not have uh, a, a real devotion in our house to St. Jude. We now do. Um, <laughs> and, and she really, uh, frankly, just rallied prayer warriors around the world to pray to St. Jude and to do this novena. There was a, um, a vigil outside the hospital. Again, they couldn't come inside, so they were outside the hospital. Uh, there was prayers that were happening. Frankly, uh, started in conjunction with what Melissa was doing. My colleagues at our Sunday visitor uh, started praying on Sunday afternoons, I believe. Um, and it was interesting because afterwards, uh, I saw pictures of people on those video calls. And I told my wife, I said, some of them aren't even Catholic that are there doing rosaries and stuff. Had I known that, I would have said, keep me under longer. Um, but, but, you know, you know uh, so that's what, that's what started was the St. Jude Novena. And I think it was about two or three days in where, as I've been told, uh, we received news that my lung x-rays were showing marked improvement. True, Eustace? True, true. I mean, he had had effective dialysis. He had had really wonderful and meticulous care by you know our nurses our respiratory therapists the physicians every physician who set foot in that unit um, just provided exemplary uh, care 
but we shouldn't underestimate the power of prayer. Um, God is always dragging us across the finish line. Um, we can do nothing without uh, without our Lord. So to, to God be all the glory for that. So it's both nature and grace. How how likely or unlikely was his recovery, strictly medically speaking, for when he was at his lowest? So recovery is an important word. Survival, I would say, reasonable chance that he ends up a guy who's profoundly debilitated with a tracheostomy tube and maybe on a machine, maybe not on a machine, and dialysis dependent. So survival is one thing. So I'd say his risk of, of achieving that is pretty good. His likelihood of achieving even that is pretty good. Even, right. even, even at his lowest, even with the multiple systems for Oregon. Okay. Even at his lowest. But the kind of recovery Jason has had, no tracheostomy, no dialysis, no oxygen, driving his car to your house to record the show yes. and walking down the stairs. Yes. That is is remarkable. Thanks be to God and St. Jude. And Melissa's comments at that time, and this is from an article that your friend uh, Gretchen Crow wrote at uh, OSV, uh, quote, the novena took us from being sick and in fear of death to the path to recovery. It made a huge difference. Do you like to add to that? I guess I would just add one one thought, and I couldn't agree with Dr. Fernandez more, that this was sort of a both and, the quality care that I received. And frankly, the number of people, even when I was lucid and recovering, the number of nurses and doctors who were praying for me and praying with me uh, continued. I really felt like, Tom, it I was the paralytic that was lowered <laughs> through the roof and laid before the feet of Jesus. And... Um, Jesus says to that paralytic, rise, your sin is so forgiven, walk. And I and I think for me, the story isn't so much about, you know, when I read that scripture, you always focus on the paralytic. But really, I think the focus should be on those guys that lowered their friend through the roof. And for me, it's friends around this table. It's friends around the world. It's my colleagues. It's my wife that lowered me in front of the feet of Jesus. They, you know, and I think to Dr. Fernandez's point, you know, they had to figure out their ingenuity to get the roof open and lower <laughs> him down. I mean, there's a cooperation there with to get him to Christ. And that's what I feel like. I feel like it was prayer that brought me back in a certain sense. So one of the things we wanted to focus on in the, the first of this irregularly recurring series is what what can you see was the value of having doctors and nurses who are faithfully committed Catholics? You know, faith matters. And I think in my story, it matters to my very being here with you uh, in terms of the faith of many in their prayer lives. But I think, you know, medicine has its limitations and we're still trying to figure it out. And so I think even for, even medical professionals need someone to rely on and to lean on. And I think you you see these guys, the doctor, 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 seer, um, <laughs> who are men that rely on the Lord tremendously. I would just add that when I was recovering, I and many people. Now this is when I'm I'm much better, but I'm going through rehab or I'm going through. The people would come to me, and I was ministering to them because they're having tough days. I mean, it's not easy, as Dr. Fernandez said to to go through this yourself and to and to see some of the worst of the worst cases you rely on you need faith but for me it meant all it meant it meant it meant the world uh to have men and women of faith of catholics that i can relate to that i can pray with could I, and that i could um and, and and at lutheran hospital in particular melissa would walk around the hospital and whether they were allowed to or not other nurses and stuff would come up to her and say, we're praying for your husband. We heard about your husband. And so it really felt like we had a, a whole hospital community that was, was in prayer. I mean, at this point, you're living there. I mean, this becomes your family and these become your, uh, this is your sort of your home. But Man, that is incredible. Jason, you know, one of the things we kind of alluded to a little bit in the trivia question that's still <laughs> hanging out there was this I idea of delirium mm. in the ICU. Mm. I know you had a wild experience with that. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So when when I woke up, when I feel I woke up, and I believe I woke up a few days prior, but uh, that's another story. Um, when I when I thought I woke up, uh, I I couldn't figure out what was real and what was dream. So for the time I was sedated. I was 
I lived a whole nother reality. Um, let me give you one emotional example. So in my dream state, I, I watched my dad die and we buried my father. We, when I became non-sedated, um, my mother wanted to FaceTime me and I said, great. Now I couldn't talk, so I had a trach in. Uh, I really couldn't move uh, my legs and stuff, but the, the FaceTime came up and there sitting next to my mother was my father. And I, I lost it. And I wrote my wife and I said, how is this possible? Now, she doesn't understand. What do you mean? <laughs> and I said, I watched him die. And, and that was the first sort of revelation to me that what's going on here? Yeah. Um, other things that happened where I wasn't, I didn't think we lived in the house we currently live in. I thought we moved. I thought I worked somewhere else. And Melissa was like, no, no, no. And I said, I have contracts in my bag. Go get my bag. She'd bring the bag, there'd be no contracts. I said, I have pictures. And I would get, she would show me my phone, there'd be no pictures. Wow. So this created a whole lot of anxiety. It also created, I did not want to sleep. Uh, I was fearful that if I shut my eyes, someone was going to come in and put me back under. And then I was going to wake up another six weeks later. Wow. Um, I was scareful. I was also seeing people in the room that were not there. I remember telling my wife, there's someone behind that curtain trying to get us. She would go open the curtain and show me that it's just a big window and people were walking by. So it really took me a long time, uh, well, not long time, but I really struggled with, am I, maybe I'm dreaming now, maybe, you know. So it's funny because uh, later some counselors came in and different ones. I said, guys, listen, you're not going to help me solve this. I have a degree in theology and philosophy. I just need my philosophy books. This is a common question. <laughs> I think, therefore, I am. I mean, this is not. So um, what ultimately sort of turned it around for me was the ordinary. For me, it was sitting and thinking and realizing in the world, the world I am now, uh, we do ordinary things. Right. In my dream state, it was all like scenes from a sitcom or a show and they were all extraordinary. But I never washed dishes. I never went to the bathroom. I never did ordinary daily things. And and so for what grounded me was this must be real. It was the ordinary. And I think what the for me, the power of that is, um, you know, Christ lived most of his life in the ordinary. He did the three years and you have miracles. You know, Jose Maria talks about, you know, finding Christ in your ordinary activity. And so for me, it was interesting. I went through very extraordinary experience, but it was rethinking about the, the ordinary things you do every day with your kids, with your family and your work that grounded. That I said, this has to be the real. Now, there were also points that I said, I'm not sure this is real or not, but I'm just want to be the best version and whatever place I'm at. And my wife and I've had some fun with it where, uh, you know, there are times where I've told her, well, assuming you're real, <laughs> but no, I, I know it's real now, but it, that was a, that was really hard. And what I hadn't realized from is that this was a common occurrence. Yeah. Eustace, how common is this and how have you seen it manifest? Well, a lot of it's, it's extraordinarily common in the ICU. So, um, if we just look at COVID patients, the Lancet Journal published something in, I think, in January of 2021, 82% of patients who are admitted to the ICU are in a comatose state for a median of 10 days. Jason was a lot longer. 55% of them uh, experience delirium of some sort, and the median duration of that is three days. Jason was a lot longer. How uh, many days was he um, out? I think it was something like six weeks. six weeks, yeah, six weeks. And that's not counting when they tried to wean him, and he right. can't remember it anyway. Right, right. And this is a consequence of the COVID infection itself, of the medications we use to sedate him while we're while we he's intubated and we're flipping him on his belly sixteen or sixteen hours out of the day. Um, and then the time when we're doing procedures on him. And then it's, it can also be a sign of a new infection. So I think when Jason started to lose it after that first time we took him off the ventilator, that was the harbinger of a new infection. So it's, a, it's an ominous, again, an ominous sign. What was the very first memory you have after being intubated? Well, I can tell you a funny story. Please do. Because <laughs> um, I, I was told this. Uh, so I think it was after the first two weeks when they brought me out. 
or maybe it was after the six, I don't know. Uh, and I couldn't talk. And I was frantically saying, I want to, um, I want to write something down. So the nurse and my wife were like, oh, he's probably in pain. There's something wrong. He's frantic. My very first words were, how much is this costing me? <laughs> uh, but, you know, um, I don't remember, Tom, like what was my first memory. The, my Seeing my mother and my father was, a, was one. When my wife walked in or was there, uh, it was pretty powerful. Um, but, again, I couldn't talk. And so it was really... It was really hard because I was trying to figure out what happened. I did not realize I'd missed Christmas. I missed uh, Thanksgiving. I didn't realize I was there that long. Um, so trying to figure all that out when you can't sort of move and you can't and you can't talk so, was really. Difficult. So what day did you leave the hospital? Uh, well, so in total, so I left there Lutheran right. here locally, and then I went to St. Rita's. But what date do you remember? I think it was 45 days at Lutheran. It was around um, the 1st of January? Yes, it was around, yeah. yes, maybe like January 4th. I think so. I think because I was, I was on I, duty, I came and saw you the day they were getting ready to cart you away. So what, mm. what was the prognosis at that point? Uncertain. Um, at that point... Uh, was he still on a, a trach? He still yes. had a trach. He had been off the ventilator. Um, but he was still dialysis dependent, I yeah. believe. Mm -hmm. And so again, the the level of uncertainty is high. So I feel pretty good that Jason's going to survive. We're real real happy about that. But but what that survival looks like is is really different, uh, patient by patient, and it can go a number of different ways. That's why it drives me crazy when people say, "Oh well, why are we worried about an illness that has a ninety nine percent survival rate?" We don't know what that survival looks like. We don't know the long-term implications. We don't know the footprint that leaves on the life of, lives of others. Um, the amount of human suffering and trauma this creates in a whole family unit. Um, so that 99% survival is really kind of an infuriating um, statistic. It's it's interesting because I've I've kind of felt the same way frequently because you talk to these these folks, good folks. I talk to them all the time. But they hear things like the ninety nine percent, and they're like, "Man, why? Why are all these medical folks so worked up about the vaccines and all of these things?" Well, because when you you see the other side of it, you know, thanks be to God, so many people do well, but there's a heck of a lot of suffering that many people are not touched by. But in medicine, you get to see it a lot, especially in the ICU. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have a week where we have seven to ten patients who die from COVID. Uh, we have. A handful of patients who survive but have severe brain injury from lack of oxygen or multiple organ systems that will not recover. So survival can look very, very different, and it can be very, very unpleasant. I mean, thanks be to God, Jason made the recovery he did. Eustace, tell us about Jason's time after leaving Lutheran. Well, we anticipated that uh, he would go to a place called Long-Term Acute Care Facility, which is in Lima, Ohio, which is sort of a uh, place that can take chronically critically ill people. So people with tracheostomies who still have dialysis needs and things like that. Our hope would be that he would make some sort of recovery in the next four to six weeks and then maybe transition to a rehab facility where he could work on gaining his real strength back and, and again, another four to six weeks away from home and family. That was our expectation, or at least my mental timeline for when I'd get to see him again. And Jason, you beat those expectations right yeah we move faster than I think anyone thought uh, and that's to a, a credit I think of the doctors and nurses and the rehab staff uh, a little determination on my part to get home to those five kids um, you know but I had to relearn how to swallow how to walk uh, how to uh, frankly talk and use these vocal cords um, how to um, eat and do a variety of other things so uh, but we made we made fast progress of it and um, and then I returned, returned home after. You had some pretty unique experiences at the rehab hospital as well, didn't you? Uh, I did. Well, uh, our good bishop, Bishop Rhodes, showed up, and uh, he said mass for me in, in the room, which was really moving. I remember him saying, my guess is, is you haven't had mass uh, since you've been through this. I said, I said, no. He says, well, this is the last day of Christmas because of the Christmas season, and I'm going to say mass for you. And I was really touched. We just have an amazing shepherd here in our local diocese that cared that much to do that. And then the uh, the chaplaincy office at St. Rita's, 
as well as the, the rehab staff were just tremendous, just tremendous. Uh, I remember even one doctor uh, there who was helping me. I'm having and still have some left arm issues. And uh, she said she was going to pray the rosary for me uh, for that left arm on the way home. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. <laughs> I, you know, and so again, um, just the power of the Catholic doctor, the power of the Catholic nurse. And, and frankly, it was really interesting because I felt like I got to minister to them. At one point, I was uh, passing out rosaries from from the Pope uh, around the hospital to nurses and staff. And I told <laughs> Melissa, I was like, I'm going to evangelize why I'm here. And we had lots of great conversations. And, and I guess I would just say, having been through this firsthand, having watched and been in the hospital for so long, uh, we are, I mean, the, the front lines of this are you guys, the doctors and the nurses and the, and the, the people that are coming to, to, that are working in the hospital and the techs and everything. And, and, um, they're doing the Lord's work and they're special people and they're doing things. I mean, they're rolling me over and I'm in, you know, cleaning me and doing a variety of things that, uh, mean a lot. And then beyond that, they're caring for my spirit. They're caring for my mind. They're caring for my family. I mean, they're seeing some of the worst of the worst cases, and and doing it with incredible skill. and uh, And I couldn't thank thank them enough in both places, Lutheran Hospital, um, and uh, St. Rita's, and of course uh, you with my primary care physicians. And I think sometimes when we talk about these medical things, we just take for granted um, uh, the people that that care for us. And so I'm I'm very grateful. Eustace, last minute, what do you want listeners to take away from this? Well, we're a diverse bunch as healthcare workers, um, different creeds, different races, different genders, whatever. Um, but Jason's illness um, provided an opportunity for a principle we've talked about a lot, which is solidarity. And we were all pulling in the same direction, all pulling for the same guy, all um, looking with a a deep gaze at the suffering of another and of an entire family and trying to do what we can um, to demonstrate authentic charity. And no matter what you believe, that comes from the Lord Jesus. That charity flows from him. And I, I saw changes in all of our staff um, from taking care of Jason and from uh, trying to help him in whatever way they could physically, spiritually, psychologically, and ease his recovery as much as possible. So uh, for me, you know, this has been a year that I can't think about too much because of all of the losses and bitter uh, bitterness, but this was a bright spot. <laughs> Jason Eustace, thanks for being with us to talk about a big win in the era of COVA. We'll be back with the rest of Dr. Doctor after the break. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question. ICU delirium, what percentage of patients get it when they go on a ventilator? According to the website icudelirium.com, which is run by a friend of ours in the Catholic Medical Association, Dr. Wes Ely, 70% of patients who go on a ventilator get ICU delirium. You see, that is incredible. And to hear it kind of firsthand from Jason is really, really remarkable. Those things you wouldn't even think about. And we're always so focused on, are the numbers looking right? Is the oxygen okay? But then on the inside, the patient's suffering in this way that we're a lot of times just not even noticing. Yeah, what, what's the patient going through? It's it, it's so good to hear that because we need to connect with our patients to be better able to to care for them. I want to point out one other thing in our, our little mutual admiration society that we have uh, going on around the table tonight, and that is that for years, friends had been asking me to write a book uh, on my researches on the crucifixion suffering, and I told God I'm never going to write a book unless a publisher asked me. Well, one night after Jason and Chris and some others and I were, Chris Stroud and I were at uh, our forum together, Jason learned about this, and he works for our Sunday Visitor, a publisher. And he said, Tom, would you be interested in writing a book? I was like, uh, well, okay, if this is God speaking, uh, talk to your editorial team. And, and that's how the book came to be. So I would not have this book, What Christ Suffered, were it not for Jason. He is an incredibly generous guy. And in fact, his job, as we were explaining to my kids tonight, his job is to give away money <laughs> from our Sunday Visitor. What a great job. So we have the top three takeaways for this show. Yeah, Andrew. I mean, I there's so many good things. I would say that's kind of addressing number one. You know, this it's amazing to see how God works in each of our lives and how they are intertwined and all wound together in ways that mm. we can only begin to appreciate the beauty of it 
on this side of things, you know what, six months later. Yes. But as you're going through step by step from the book to Jason to Mary to Eustace, it, it's really incredible. So I mean, the uh, fact that we're recording when Jason is texting me. Yeah, it's, what are the chances? And I mean, you got to just sit there in awe and uh, and amazement and gratitude at, at the gifts we're given. I, I guess the other thing I would like to, to say, number two, is Jason's story is extraordinary, but I don't think it's unique. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of folks who have suffered right. from COVID, and we got to remember to keep them in our prayers. And especially as we, you know, we had the show on the good news of COVID, as things continue to be good news instead of bad, and hopefully in the future things continue to improve, um, let's remember to stay strong in, in the things we need to and do take this seriously because there are many people who are suffering. You know, and the last of my top three takeaways would be you got to just sit and marvel at the power of prayer and the St. Jude Novena. I always like, I always thought St. Jude is one of the coolest, you know, monikers, impossible causes. It's like, that's as good as it gets. And uh, Jason's is another testament to to the power of prayer, especially to to St. Jude. That's an insightful wrap up, Andrew. Thank you listeners for being with us for this incredible episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of this show with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And be sure to rate and review our show to help new listeners find us. You can also find all of our old episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. Be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.